Well, if you're wondering if we're almost done, we are just getting started. <laughs> if you have a Bible with you, I'd, I invite you to open it up. Uh, we'll start in the Gospel of Matthew and see where that leads us. Matthew chapter 2. If you are visiting the bridge tonight, welcome. We're so glad you're here and so honored you chose to spend this time on Christmas Eve. I know you could be doing all kinds of things, probably things not healthy. So this is good. This is good. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And so we're going to enjoy some of the word, some of the bread of the word tonight. As he came to be the bread of life, we're going to open up and enjoy his word together for a few minutes. Let's bow one more time. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You. You chose, you chose to feed us, Lord. You offered us a bread that um, is everlasting and eternal in Jesus. The Word made flesh. Holy Spirit, we trust You to teach us and guide us. I pray, Father, any words of mine that are not Your words would be forgotten tonight and all that would be left would be Your Word on our hearts. And we rely on You, Holy Spirit, of the living Christ, to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1956. Theodore Geisel sat alone in his studio atop Mount Soledad, looking down upon La Jolla, California, and he puzzled for hours till his puzzler was sore. And he thought of a story he hadn't before. And in 1957, he, Dr. Seuss, published How the Grinch Stole Christmas. One of my favorite stories, and perhaps you're familiar with the story, every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot. But the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. Rick, are you going to do the whole story? I might. (laughs) A little further on in the story it says, and the more the Grinch thought of this Who Christmas sing, the more the Grinch thought... I must stop the whole thing. Why, for 53 years I've put up with it now. I must stop this Christmas from coming. But how? Now, if you're familiar with the story of the Grinch, as most of you are, you know, he really wasn't that bad a guy. He was just a little misguided. In fact, it's really just that his heart was two sizes too small. Right? He had a tiny ticker. That was the issue. The Bible talks about Another Grinch who tried to steal Christmas. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? Who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. No wonder he was troubled. Herod the king is now approached by these magi who say, where's the king? What? It's me, isn't it? I've been working very hard to make sure that it would remain me. (laughs) What are you talking about? Further on down, skip down to verse 16. We're told that when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the magi, he became enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. And people asked a week ago if what happened in Newtown, Connecticut, how could that possibly happen so close to Christmas? Well, it's not the first time innocent children were slain at Christmas time. 
And if you think about the tragedy and the heartache and how sickening it was for so many of us to even read the news, much less people who live in Newtown, who deal with it, the parents and the families, perhaps we can gather a little more understanding of how it felt for the people in Bethlehem and all the vicinity when Herod slew all of the male children under the age of two. Matthew writes, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. That's Jeremiah 31.15. Jeremiah the prophet prophesied those words that there would be weeping heard in this region all the way up to Ramah. Now see, Herod was trying to use the Magi to discover the birthplace of the king so he could just kill the king, take him out. But being wise men, the Magi, being warned by an angel, angel took another way home. And so Herod's only recourse was to slaughter all possibilities of newborn kings. Some have estimated in reading this that because of the size of Bethlehem, probably about a thousand in population, that it couldn't have been that many children who were slain, perhaps a dozen or so were killed. Well, I would take issue with that because what they forget is Herod decrees not only Bethlehem, but Bethlehem and all the vicinity. And you add in Ramah, which is six miles north of Jerusalem, Bethlehem six miles south of Jerusalem, you you draw a 12-mile arc around Jerusalem, that's probably the vicinity we're talking about. Besides the fact, if one innocent infant was murdered, it would be too many. But Herod went after all of these. And yet, Herod was not the greatest threat to the Christ child. He's just the agent. He was simply the the one used by a more sinister, more deadly Grinch who attempted to take out Jesus. And I'm talking about the Grinch behind Herod, the greatest hater of Christmas and all things related to Christ in history. And I'll tell you something, if you run across hatred for Jesus... Hatred for Christians. Hatred for those who believe in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are coming across motivation that is Satan driven. Because Satan hates Christmas. The whole Christmas thing. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit tonight. If you'll indulge me, turning your Bibles over to the book of Revelation chapter 12. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Revelation chapter 12. Now, as you're turning there, understand that the real enemy of Christmas would have you believe the book of Revelation shouldn't be touched. In fact, I don't know if you heard it. Those of you who saw the Star of Bethlehem video we showed on Sunday, I don't know if you heard the speaker make a comment about the book of Revelation being hard to understand. Now, no offense to the speaker, but that is a common myth even in the church. Well, the book of Revelation is just hard to understand. No, it's not. Why did God give us the book of revealing simply to be mysterious and difficult to understand? It is not complicated as many people think. It is not as mysterious as many people think. Unfortunately, like the Who's Down in Whoville, many people ignore the threat of the enemy. You know, the Grinch was up on Mount Crumpet. And the Who's were down there just doing their Who thing not paying any attention to the possible threat of their enemy at their own back door. And too many people are like that. In and out of the church today, 
ignoring the threat, ignoring the enemy, and ignoring the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 10, tells us, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And so, by the command given in the book of Revelation, we're not to seal it up, put it away, and leave it alone. Because the time is near. And so this book would call us to pay attention. Jesus would advise us all to open up this book like kids on Christmas morning and find the treasures and the gifts that are within. Revelation chapter 12. Just five verses this this evening. Verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars and she was with child. And she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. Now, a helpful tool for reading through and understanding and deciphering the book of Revelation is very simply this. Take it at face value. Take it in its most simple, uncomplicated, straightforward, literal form, unless the writer John tells you otherwise. If John tells you this is a metaphor, this is a sign, this is a picture, well then we have some room, some wiggle room to think it through and say, well what could this possibly be? But otherwise, take it literally. As written, as is. And John begins Revelation 12, well, he begins saying otherwise. He begins by saying, a great sign appeared. In fact, the phrase there, the Greek word great sign is megas semion. In other words, mega signs. And what we see in these five verses are three mega signs. We're talking big signs, big deals. Things that everyone ought to be aware of. Far more important than the Mayan apocalypse. Which came and went. Yeah, I was sweating that one. Mega signs. Mega signs that Jesus gives us to say, pay attention to these, be aware of these, these are big ones. A sign of a woman, a sign of a dragon, and thirdly, the sign of a child. Let's look at these one at a time. The sign of the woman. Sign of the woman. Now, it being Christmas Eve and all, I know many people would be inclined to assume the woman is Mary. But gang, this is a mega sign. This is far bigger than Mary herself can possibly be. And I told you on Sunday I would talk about this tonight. That this sign, this woman, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars as she was with child, is not Mary. Now, what's interesting about this is there are a lot of bogus interpretations of this sign. In fact, of all three of these signs, there are some very odd, strange, cultish Uh, interpretations out there. J. Vernon McGee says, tell me your interpretation of the woman in the 12th chapter of Revelation and I will tell you your interpretation of Bible prophecy. That's how big a sign this is. Not to be misunderstood. There are a lot of bogus interpretations out there. As I said, most are pretty lame and not really worth mentioning. But I will mention one 
there are some who teach and believe that the woman here in Revelation 12 is the church. It can't be. This cannot be a sign of the coming church, and I'll explain why in a little bit. The woman is not the church. The woman is not Mary. This mega sign is of the nation that gave birth to Mary, and truly the nation who more importantly gave birth to Jesus, the Messiah. The woman is the nation of Israel. Well, Rick, you sound awfully sure of yourself. I am. The woman is Israel. Isaiah 9 verse 6 says, A child will be born to us. Isaiah the prophet, the Israelite prophet said, A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. So Isaiah the Jewish prophet comes along and he says, The child is born to us. Who is us? Israel. Romans chapter 9, verse 4, Paul takes it further. He says, The Israelites are those to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. Christ was born of Israel. The woman who gives birth is Israel. Again, larger than Mary. Bigger than Mary. We're told that she's clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And there are interesting things, as we saw on Sunday, things happening in the heavens, things in the skies at the time of Jesus' birth. And, and you can look at those things and, and extrapolate and say, well, well, the, the virgin, the star pattern of the virgin was rising and there was a moon at her feet and, and try and piece it together like that. And perhaps there's something intriguing there. But it's bigger than that. And notice, it's not the virgin. It's the woman. The woman. A bigger sign than simply Mary. And she does have, she's clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. This is very, very specific. And Scripture explains exactly what's being talked about here. Every Torah-minded Jew reading this would know exactly who this was. Oh wait, sun. And the moon and the twelve stars. Wait a minute, there's a story about that. Turn in your Bibles back to Genesis 37. Keep your finger there. Go back to Genesis 37, verse 9. One of the marvelous things about studying Revelation is you know, you discover how completely interconnected the entire Bible is. In fact, you can't really study through the book of Revelation without studying the entirety of Scripture along with it because it all comes to a head in that book. Genesis 37, verse 9, is talking about Joseph, young Joseph. And he had a dream, verse 9. He's had still another dream. And it related, listen to this, to his brothers. The dream related to his brothers. And he said, Lo, I've had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Well, okay, I see the parallel, Rick, but he says eleven stars, and there were twelve stars in Revelation chapter 12. (laughs) Joseph is one of the stars. So eleven stars plus one, do the math. He related it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? 
and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Jacob is the son. Rachel is the moon, not Rachel, our piano player. And the twelve sons are the stars. Jacob, Rachel, the twelve boys. Gang, this was the beginning of Israel. Jacob, who God named Israel. Jacob's family, the people of Israel, the woman is Israel. Back to Revelation chapter 12. And again, it's critical that you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture and not the skies and not other people or not other thoughts or cults or ideas. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And the first place to go when you see a sign, whether it's in Revelation or somewhere else, the first place to go to see if you can find something about that sign is Scripture. Stay in the Word long enough to see what the Word has to say. And so we have the first mega sign. The first mega sign is Israel. Sign number two, the sign of the dragon. Verse three, another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now, the dragon hated Christmas, this whole Christmas season. Just go to the Scriptures, you'll discover the reason. Why does he hate Christmas? Because Satan hates God. Satan hates everything to do with God. Everything about the Lord. All the Lord intends to accomplish, Satan is opposed to. Why? Because pride does that. And Satan is the picture of pride. Pride leaves no room for the love of and the worship of God. That's why a lot of people have trouble coming to a point of faith in Jesus. It's not that they can't believe, it's they don't want to believe. And I've had times in my life where I did not want to believe. I don't want to do what you're asking me to do, Lord. That's pride. As if you or I, as if we know better. As if we think we might have this path in our lives figured out. And it's pride. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 tells us, speaking of Satan, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high... God says to Satan, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Gang, Satan hates the people of God. He hates Israel. He always has hated Israel. And he is, if you haven't thought about this before, and some of you have, he is the reason for the otherwise unreasonable, unexplainable anti-Semitism that has plagued Israel for 4,000 years. Have you ever just thought about that? Why do people hate the Jews? Where does that come from? Why this group of people? More than any other group, why are they so maligned? Why are they so hated? Why is the world so opposed to the Jew? Well, it's because they make all those movies. No, it's much more. (laughs) Because they're in business, they're in entertainment, they're in finance, they're in all these areas. They're in medicine. That's another interesting thing is how blessed these people have been. Blessed by God with great gifts and great abilities and great talents and have been an amazing blessing to the world and yet hated so much by the world. Why? Because Satan hates Israel. 
the dragon hates the woman. Now listen to this picture, the description of him. He's a red dragon, which speaks of his personality. He's monstrous. He is not the cute little picture, you know, of the horns and little tail. You know, the little red suit, the red dragon. He's monstrous, he's wicked, he's devouring. He is behind what happened at Newtown, Connecticut. If we want to get down to the real issue in this country, the real issue is Satan is hard at work. Our country is ignoring that. Our country is paying no attention to the enemy, thinking we can do just fine on our own, thank you very much, we don't really need Jesus, and certainly there can't really be a Satan. And so these things happen, and people ask why, and they go to the blame game. There's a real enemy, and gang, he's a red dragon, red speaking of spilt blood. Jesus said in John 8.44, He was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus said in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Uh, Peter said in 1 Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is not a pretty picture. This is a dangerous, horrific picture. He has seven heads and ten horns. Now, I'm not going to get all into that tonight. It would take me a little longer than I have. But it implies great intelligence and absolute influence. Intelligence and influence. Ezekiel 28, verse 12, speaking of Satan again, says, You had the seal of perfection. You were full of wisdom. You were perfect in beauty. This adversary gang is not to be trifled with. He's sharp as a tack. He's wily. And he knows what he's doing. And he never forgets what he's up against. Even though we might. Seven diadems on these crowns. Uh, Seven diadems speaks of seven crowns and it indicates authority literally over nations. Authority over nations and over world rulers and world leaders. Why can't we get anything done in Washington these days? And not to get all political, but I'm not really happy with anybody in Washington right now. And I'll tell you what would make a difference. I've said it before. If Republicans and Democrats would meet in the middle of the aisle and pray, we'd see a difference. But you see, the enemy has authority over the nation. 2 Corinthians 4.3, Paul says, if our gospel, if the good news of Christ is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Yeah, yeah, but Paul's just making a metaphorical allusion, right? I mean, is Satan really the God of this world? It's interesting in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan is tempting Jesus. And by the way, he was not some kind of vague thing, some vague force. Jesus deals with him as an actual true personality. Interacts with him, talks to him. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. You can't give what you don't own, gang. And he says, I'll give you the kingdoms. How could Satan say that? Because they belong to him. The kingdoms of the world are the devil's to give. And Jesus didn't say to him, oh, you can't give that because you don't own them. No, Jesus said, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
This red dragon, verse 4 tells us, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, perhaps indicating a third of the angels went with him when he rebelled against God, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who is about to give birth. Get this picture. It is a bloodthirsty, horrifying picture. I know Hollywood has kind of made us all vague to bad stuff like this. But imagine a woman giving birth to a child with a dragon's mouth open, ready to just eat the child alive. That's the picture that's being drawn here for us. And I know it's upsetting for the little one. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. In other words, the dragon tried everything he could to steal Christmas. That's what verse 4 is, in essence, talking about. We saw this dramatically played out 2,000 years ago in that little town of Bethlehem in the region around this. And you might ask the question, but why did the dragon want to kill the child? Because he knew the child was going to be his ultimate undoing. The birth of this child into the world would crush the dragon ultimately. I told you, Satan's wily. He's smart. He's wise. He's on to the program. He knows what's coming down the pike. And Genesis 3.19, as God is speaking to the serpent, as He's laying out the curses for the sin that's happened in the garden, He looks the serpent in the eye and He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise Him on the heel. And the bruise on the head, gang, this is a skull-crushing prophecy. And Satan is the one who received that word from God. He's going to bruise you on the head. You will bruise him on the heel. No wonder history is littered with attempts by Satan to stop the birth of the child. And it wasn't just 2,000 years ago. It's all the way back to the beginning. First, he tries to drive out the man and the woman from the garden. He tries to cause them to sin. He succeeds. Then, he causes the first two boys born to be one, a victim of murder, and the other, the murderer. Track him down through history. The wickedness that led up to God saying, i got to flood this earth and start over. i got eight people left. Do you realize we were down to eight people to see the world redeemed? That's how bad it got. Well, there weren't that many people on earth back in those days, Rick. Actually, studies show that there may have been more people on earth in the days of Noah than today. And it was so wicked and so evil and so bad and Satan had gone so far in his control that we were down to Noah and his family and that was it. And you know what would have happened had Noah and his family been overcome by evil and the entire world turned to evil? It means anyone who died righteous before that of the line of Seth Anyone who believed in God would never have had a hope of salvation because no righteous person could have come, that is Jesus, if the whole world had turned evil. That's why God flooded the world. It was to save. He didn't want to destroy, but it was to save. Continue tracking it through. The idolatry of Nimrod and the building of the Tower of Babel. Satan hard at work. The slaughter of the Hebrew infants first by Pharaoh and then, of course, later by Herod. Attempting to stop this Christmas thing from happening. Haman promoting genocide in the Persian court of Ahasuerus. Follow the biblical record all the way through. You come ultimately to Herod's rampage against all the male infants at the birth of Jesus. And Satan hard at work, the dragon to devour the child. 
Lighten up, dude. It's Christmas time, you might say. (laughs) Why must we talk about the devil? I came to hear about a baby born in a manger. And every who down in Whoville loves the story of the baby in the manger as long as we can keep him there. Because if that baby grows up and starts to ask for lordship, well, then i got to make a change in my life. Then I have to make a decision. Why talk about the devil at Christmas time? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, If I have forgiven anything, I had did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul was clear to say that. Don't be ignorant. In fact, it's one of only four or five times Paul even says the phrase, do not be ignorant of this. He says, don't be ignorant of the rapture of the church. Don't be ignorant of those things. Don't be ignorant of spiritual gifts. Be aware of those things. He says, don't be ignorant of Satan and his schemes. Paul says, don't be ignorant of Israel. The other mega sign, you be aware of Israel. You pay attention to what the Word says about Israel. Don't be ignorant of the scheming of Satan. J. Vernon McGee said, God knew that a great percentage of preachers in this century would teach that Satan does not exist. So, he makes it so you can't miss him. If your enemy can get you to think that he does not exist, he will have a tremendous advantage over you. And again, people wondering, blown away, confused last week by the horror of what happened in Connecticut. It doesn't make any sense. How can this kind of thing keep happening? It happened in Clackamas, Oregon. How can it keep happening? Going all the way back over several years now to these shootings and these incidents of brutality. And haven't you noticed in the news, it's just getting more brutal. I won't go down that road again. We talked about that a week ago Sunday. And you may be a visitor here saying, Wow, happy church. (laughs) Gang, the dragon is the mega sign that most people would rather just ignore. You know, leave me to my candy canes. And let me ignore this. I don't want to think about that. Well... The only way we're going to stand against the enemy is to know of the enemy and more importantly to turn to the third sign. Our only hope of peace. Our only hope of peace in this world is sign number three, the sign of the child. Verse five. She gave birth to a son, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. So the final and most significant mega sign is Jesus. The child is Jesus, absolutely, clearly. And Satan could not stop the forward motion of God's plan. I just love how it reads. I mean, look at how impossible a situation this is. The woman is there, she's giving birth. The dragon is open mouth, ready to chomp the child to bits. But (laughs) he was caught up to God and His throne. He could not sink his teeth into the child. Because you cannot thwart the forward motion of God's plans. Now, granted, the dragon would ultimately bruise the child's heel as the nails went through his feet on the cross. Very literally, his heels would be bruised. 
The skull-crushing prophecy of the dragon's end is fast coming upon us. And I love verse 5 because it says this son, this male child, is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And I say, Jesus, bring it. Rule us with the rod of iron. By the way, um, the literal rendering of this specific prophecy is the son is first caught up to God in his throne. Bible students, guess what? Jesus was raptured. He was caught up. The word is harpazo. The Greek word harpazo, which we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, that talks about all of those who are alive at the time that Christ calls. We who are alive and remain will be caught up, harpazo, raptured, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So Jesus was caught up. Well, where's any example in the Bible of anybody being raptured? Well, Jesus was caught up to God and to the throne. I love that. Now this reference to ruling with a rod of iron speaks of His coming reign. But before we get there, let me go back and answer the question that I asked earlier. Why can't the woman be the church? For those who have proposed that perhaps the woman describes the church, listen, the church didn't give birth to Jesus. Jesus gave birth to the church. So the whole thing would be upside down. This woman gives birth to the child. The child is Jesus. The woman is Israel. It is not the church. Jesus gave birth to the church. Now think about this just for a moment, Christians. It's an amazing thing. John says in 1 John 5, verse 5, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So there you have it right there. You want to overcome the wickedness, the darkness, the despair of this world? Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John says, this is the one, speaking of Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And you might be going, Spirit, water, and blood, what is he talking about? Blood and water are the fluids of death. Blood and water. John 19.34 tells us one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And medically, that's the result of a ruptured heart. After Jesus died, not long after they died, he died, the, the Roman soldier, the centurion, drove the spear into his side just to check and make sure he truly was dead. He looked dead. They thought he was dead, let's be sure. And as he plunges the spear in, water and blood spurred out indicating his heart had exploded inside of his chest. And so he obviously was dead. Blood and water, the fluids of death. But gang, you know this, blood and water are also the fluids of birth. They are the fluids of life. Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. As for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Well, of course it is. Drain the blood out of my body and this sermon's over. Don't get any ideas. <laughs> By His death, Jesus gave life to the church and to all who come to Him in obedient faith. Jesus birthed the church in His death. And the blood and the water and the Spirit testified to this. And so Jesus said in John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. 
The kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. And so Jesus would say to every one of us tonight, I offer you life. And that life is by my blood. It is by the blood. It is by the water. It is by the spirit. I offer you life if you'll accept my lordship. Whether or not we accept his lordship, this one is coming to rule with a rod of iron. He will come to rule the earth because the Jesus we celebrate tonight is no child. He is the King. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will surely tell you of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with, listen, a rod of iron. And you shall shatter them like earthenware. That's where the prophecy ties in to Revelation 12.5. He will rule with a rod of iron. So Revelation 12.5 is referring directly back to Psalm 2 where God the Father is talking to God the Son. Are you with me? And He says you shall rule with a rod of iron. That's an interesting passage, Psalm 2. Because God the Father says to God the Son, Today... You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. What day? Well, is his birthday? Christmas day? Is that what God was talking about? Those who have said that Jesus... Well, perhaps there was a time back in eternity that Jesus was born. Uh-uh. Jesus was never born. Oh, He was born a, a human. But Jesus has always existed because in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus has always been. He was born into this world. Oh, okay, so His birth was when He was begotten, right? Nope. What is God talking about when He says, Today I have begotten you? Listen close. There's a little Christmas mystery we can unwrap here. When God says, today I have begotten you, He was not talking about Jesus' birth. He was talking about His resurrection. As Jesus resurrected, this is a prophetic word of God saying, today I have begotten you. The begottenness of Christ is the resurrection of Christ. Where do you get that idea, Rick? Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Acts chapter 13, verse 33, Paul is preaching and he says, We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And Paul, inspired by the Spirit of Christ, tells us Jesus was begotten, resurrected to new life, and is now consecrated to rule the nations. In His resurrection, God is speaking of the begottenness of Christ. You are begotten to rule. You are resurrected to rule, and you will rule with a rod of iron. The prophet Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7, says, God says through the prophet, I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. And I love that verse because, gang, when the desire of nations comes, the nation will enter into the time of greatest joy in the world. Greatest joy ever. Joy to the world. By the way, Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, 
where God says the desire of all nations shall come, speaking of the second coming of Christ, is what inspired Isaac Watts in 1719 to pick up the pen and write Joy to the World, which is not a Christmas carol. It is a second coming carol. It's not a song that speaks of Jesus' birth. It's a song that speaks in hope, looking forward to His glorious return when the desire of nations shall come and He shall come to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And by the way, that rod of iron, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's His righteousness. It is going to be perfect rule. Sounds like a dictatorship. Absolutely it will be. There's not going to be any votes on what happens on planet Earth when Jesus rules and reigns. He will rule with absolute, perfect righteousness and authority. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. So let me ask you tonight, have you received Him as King? Have you received Him as Lord? As both Savior and Lord, not just Savior, but Savior and Lord of your life absolutely critical because right now the dragon is attempting to steal away the coming of Christ from as many hearts as possible. That is his goal now. The child got by him. He thought he had Jesus in the crucifixion. Jesus resurrected. And from that point forward, Satan knows he's in trouble. There is no stopping this juggernaut from rolling. But what he can do is stop as many people as possible from receiving Jesus is King. That's His task right now. Look down at verse 12 of Revelation 12. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Now, that speaks of what is about to happen. Of a time that is coming very soon. And a time called the tribulation, when Satan will realize, I'm out of time. And he will go berserk. But listen, he knows right now time is short. And he is working very hard to block people from receiving Jesus as Lord. And so the question for you and for me tonight is simply this. Is Jesus the desire of my heart? I'm so so blessed that you all are here tonight. What an odd place to spend a Christmas Eve. Oh, I know people go to church and stuff on Christmas Eve, but... But to sit and worship and listen to teaching when you could be doing anything else. And so my assumption, my guess, is that Jesus is the desire of your heart. Praise God. Now if you were dragged here by a relative who said, this is all I want for Christmas, just come with me. Then I ask you the same question. I ask you the same question. Is Jesus the desire of your heart? Can you pray, come desire of nations, come? Does that thrill you? That He's coming? As I said before, the Grinch was no devil. Perhaps he's a poor comparison because he doesn't have the depravity in the children's story that we see in the dragon. Maybe actually the Grinch is a better comparison to some of us. What was it that changed in the Grinch? High atop Mount Crumpet. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And Paul said in Romans 10.9, 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, the begottenness of Jesus, raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, Christmas really isn't about giving it all. It is about receiving. It is about receiving Jesus Christ as Lord of your heart.